Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. We have escaped from New York. I'm Ben Rothenberg. She's Courtney Nguyen. We are here for another episode of the show. Are you glad the Grand Slam season is done, Courtney? Uh, glad is probably not the word. I think that, and we'll obviously talk about this as we get through the podcast, but I think that the way the U.S. Open ended, it didn't feel like closure to me. <laughs> so in that way, I kind of felt like, no, 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 I need one more. And I need like another big tournament. I need to see, you know, the big name guys tested. I need to see if Marin Cilic can do it again, like all these sorts of things. So I kind of left the slam season with more questions than answers, which is exciting. But yeah, I don't know if that means that I'm happy the slam season's over. It's like a weird cliffhanger finish, isn't it? It totally is a cliffhanger. <laughs> like in a good like in a good way. Like not in like the, the shitty like stuff that Lost used to do. Not like that. But yeah, like I definitely am very I am already very curious, A, to see what happens um, you know, in the Asian swing, what happens at the the World Tour finals for the ATP, what happens for the women as well. And then I am very much looking forward to Australia. Speaking of Lost, has there ever been a TV show that pissed off its audience more than Lost? Like on a repeated Ooh intentional basis because i always used to say as i got more and more more and more annoyed with that show that the title really only described the audience (laughs) like it was aggressively confusing and intentionally frustrating in a way that i think sucked no i totally agree and i i don't know if i'm like clear-headed enough to like think about it because i was definitely one of those people who like loved the show in the very beginning yeah me too you know for like the three first like two and a half seasons maybe When it was about, I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine about this a this, uh, couple days ago, about how, like, I really love shows where, like, you take relatively normal people and you put them and you force them to react to something. That's just crazy. Like, that's really compelling television to me, which is why I didn't really love Breaking Bad, which is how this conversation came up. Yeah, so the first three seasons of Lost were great because it was, like, all these, like, relatively normal people reacting to this totally absurd situation. And then smoke started showing up and, like, hatches and codes and random things that were about the mythology. And, and I was so like, well, this is people. dumb. Yeah. And then so many other people, I'm like, no, let's just stick to this core group. And then I just was like, I'm so over it. So I stopped watching Lost the last couple of seasons. But I mean, I think X-Files, because I'm obviously rewatching it. I think that's a show that pissed off a lot of people as well. But I think that it ha- it had kind of endeared its, like the characters, the two main characters had endeared themselves so much to people that they kind of gave them a bit of slack. But that show petered off in the last two seasons in a horrible way. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Good question. Sorry. Tangent. Segway. <laughs> Here's a segue for you. Two characters people didn't know very well ended up in the U.S. Open final. Marin Cilic and Kenny Shikori were the first time there have been two guys outside ranked outside the top 10. Nishikori was the number 10 seed, but he was ranked 11th in a Grand Slam final in so long, I think in 12 years. And it was a completely new look for the ATP. It was not what we're used to, and it was a very weird situation also just because of how the tournament had been pretty much going according to plan until the semifinals. I mean, it wasn't like a wimbledon Geddon situation where everything fell apart and then that, that's who emerged out of the rubble. There really was no rubble until the semifinals. We were on track for a Djokovic-Federer final until then. So, Courtney, I guess my first question is take it back to Saturday night. Sunday, 
what does it what does it mean before we get to the final itself? Like, what did it mean for that to be the final and for how the tennis world reacted to it? I guess. Yeah, I think the the more more interesting side of it was how people reacted to it. I mean, yeah. obviously, what was so great about um, and what really resonated with me and what I kind of tried to keep pitching to people was that I thought it was just so great that the way that Nishikori and Chilich made the final was legit. Like this wasn't a broke, as you were saying, it wasn't a broken draw. I mean, Nishikori beats number five, number three, and number one seeds, puts, you know, all of those questions of his frailty behind him and plays those two back-to-back five setters in the span of 36 hours and wins them. Um, and then you have Chilich who, I mean, talk about a beatdown. Whoa, that was a beatdown yeah. um, over Roger Federer. And, you know, do- wins 10 straight sets, as it were, uh, to win his first slam title i mean those were these are not guys who lucked into anything i think that in in both instances they earned everything that they got that was all fine and good so what was interesting was just seeing the reaction so for so often it's i don't know it's kind of almost like a hot takey thing you you almost saw because for so long obviously the big four have dominated and dominated the tour with an iron fist and and even this year as we started to see these um waves and these 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 pushes by as I love how Marin Chilich describes them, the second line. I, I think that's great. But the second line of ATP guys, at the end of the day, it was the big guys. I mean, put Vavrinka aside, but it was the big guys who were winning all the Masters, who were winning uh, the Majors in Rafa and Novak, and competing for them because, you know, they were still top four guys, were in both, were the two finalists in both the French and uh, Wimbledon. So, you know, people were kind of starting because you, it's easy to get bored with the narrative. It was like, oh, you know, we need a change and and the domination is boring and all these sorts of things. And I definitely confess that I'm one of those people because, as everybody knows, I don't like domination. And then you have, like, Nishikori and Chilich make it. And then all of a sudden, everybody was, like, making fun of it. Like, make, like even, like, people who I consider, like, you know, really true tennis fans and tennis hipsters in a way and um, both writers and fans who are just like, what is this? You know, and and A, it's obviously easy and fun to just make the joke, but there does come a point where you do have to stop and say, this is a really big day for these two guys and they earn their spot and ATP, this is your future. And this is something that I know Ben and I have both been harping on for a while now that the big four are not always going to be there. And these are going to be the crazy finals that no one is going to actually connect to. And this is what the ATP is going to have to sell. And that's going to be difficult. There's a lot there in what you just said, obviously. There's a lot of different ways to come at this. I think, first of all, in terms of people being unprepared for it, that's the thing that really needs to be pointed out. Not only was it just this doesn't happen in slams. I mean, this is the first time without a big five guy, sorry, a big four guy in the final of a slam since, I think, 2005 Australian Open. Um, but they had, doesn't even have it in Masters tournaments. I mean, like, these guys are so dominant all the time. For us to be without one of them, if it had been, let's say, Chilich in the final, beating Federer in the semi, and then Djokovic in the final, that would have been like Del Potro. You know, people would have been right. used to that. That would have been, okay, you take one out one step at a time. But right, or, like, or a Vavrinka. Right, right, or Vavrinka, exactly. But there were two strangers, to use that term loosely, in the in the final. And I think people were were startled by that and unsure and like you said absolutely right Courtney this is these are based on age the guys who are going to be hitting their prime in the next several years as the other guys were used to get past their primes and this is what the ATP has and I will say after being empty 
the beginning, the crowd was totally full by the yeah. end of that match, which did not give them very much time. That's largely a factor of the terrible 5 p.m. start time, which starts as people are still, you know, wrapping up their work days in Manhattan. It takes a while to get out there, and it's just not a great was not a great situation for anybody that's scheduling. And so, but it did fill up. I think on a certain level, the eight, something like a U.S. Open final is always going to survive. It's an event beyond the players. As much as people like Federer and get louder for Federer and care more about Federer, you know, that occasion trumps individuals, I think, in a lot of cases of a Grand Slam final. But and I think that but, will apply at all four slams. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think, think that's just a U.S. Open thing. Completely agree. That'll be at all four slams. But along the way, there are some differences. Like we had the Nishikori Ronich match which obviously went really late and was the sec- tied for the latest finish ever at 226. But that match was not full at the beginning. Like, yeah. that that really, that was a match that I think followed a Azarenka Krunich first up in the night session. Yeah. And so that, in terms of star power, is not a strong ticket for a sort of middle weekend type thing. And that's what, obviously, night sessions happen a lot during the CBS uh, time when CBS gets all the best matches in the day session. But, I mean, that's a question for ATP. It's just, have they set up these guys to take the baton and run with it at the speed that the other guys have because those are the guys who's next. And especially that Nishikori Ronich match, people did not seem to gravitate to that almost at all. I mean, people were not sticking around for even the second set of it. Yeah, and and even the crowd that was there was pretty flat. Yeah, you know, obviously you had you had uh, a boisterous Croatian crew and um and people just cheering because they wanted to see more tennis because it was going so quickly. But aside from that, you know, it wasn't people who were like, "Yeah, I want to go see this match" or "I want to pick a side." Uh, so you know, I mean, that's difficult. And and again, I think that a a big point of emphasis here is what you said, Ben, that. The f- slam finals are always going to sell out and the crowds are going to be great. And right. so if they, those are not, that's not where we're making this measurement. And that's not where even the critique comes. The critique is going to come at the lower level, at the master series and yeah. the 500s, when you don't have a big four guy in your field at the 500s, let's say, and you don't have a big four guy at the business end of master's tournaments, I think that does affect ticket sales um you know it obviously trickles down to first round second round third round fourth round you could be watching a second round opening match of Kaney Shikori you know grand slam champion one day and it could be a half empty stadium we we don't know but but it could be and that's where um if you're a, a tennis fan this isn't just an ATP thing if you're a tennis fan you get concerned because that's where the money is yeah. and that's where sponsorships start leaving TV deals start getting lower and the sport really begins to suffer because the money isn't there. And I think the sport has absolutely benefited as it should. And as it had every right to under the big four and what they did. But, but if this really is kickstarting a new era, Oh boy. I mean, that's the thing. And I, you mentioned the 500. And that's totally right. Like I have gone to the Washington tournament for, I mean, at least for every session for the last eight consecutive times. Yeah. And it's just, not the same buzz. Andy Roddick carried it a little bit when he was playing still. He was an American guy. He was top five. And he was, as far as a draw goes, a big four equivalent for sure in the States. Uh, since then, it's been different. And that's even with still having eight of the top 20 guys or something like that at a yeah. 500. It's not the same when you don't have one of those big guys. And I just hope that the ATP has a, can find a way to make that transition, that change of regime fairly successfully because... I definitely have question marks as to whether or not. I don't think tennis is going to die. I think tennis will keep being a great product, but I think there could be a definite, significant 
lull in uh, visibility and popularity of the sport and just buzz of the sport if right. it's not handled correctly. So well, we'll that's see. the thing. Yeah, because people want to see celebrities. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's really what in the, the you know kind of effectively drives ticket sales. I think is that they and and if you get past and this also applies to the women's side as well. We don't want to just make it just about no, the guys. But, totally true. But you know, once you take those stars that that have transcended the sport off the table, like who is actually going to months in advance say, you know what, on this Wednesday night, I'm going to buy a ticket for this tournament for who exactly are we talking about, you know? And I think the women are maybe in a better position um, star-wise than the men, although the men are in a better position simply because men's tennis is a more marketable product at the moment. It's it's tough. It's tough either way. Because, I mean, could you imagine, like, this U.S. Open if Serena doesn't win? If we actually got that Peng Makarova final that <laughs> oh, people boy. were threatening us, threatening uh, the WTA with? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Tough. Let's start. Let's go. Let's and take it a little bit out of the abstract and talk about the actual guy who won. We haven't mentioned directly yet that Marin Cilic won the U.S. Open, <laughs> which is a thing that happened. I mean, Marin Cilic won the 2014 U.S. Open. That was not supposed to happen. The match was not great at all. It was actually one of the more lopsided Grand Slam finals in recent memory, I guess, since, well, the Nadal-Ferrer French Open final oh, last yeah. year was not any good either. Um, but at but least th- that one had literal fireworks. That one did have a bizarre shirtless <laughs> intruder with a sparkler who was somehow anti-gay. It was the gayest thing anybody had ever seen. <laughs> Nishikori Chilich was 6-3, 6-3, Really quick, um, Nishikori was just sort of out of gas, clearly, and Chilich was playing well. I don't think he played as well against Nishikori as he did against Federer, but it was still well above the level Nishikori was able to produce, and it was a pretty flat final pretty quick. All of this, what does it mean? Let's get to that. Was this a one-off, do you think, Courtney? Was there reason to think that the world order has been toppled? Or was this just a fluke? I don't know. I I mean, that's like the really frustrating thing about all of this. I really don't know. But, I mean, thinking about it, having thought about it now for a few days, um, it's really hard to ignore the idea that the dam broke at the U.S. Open, okay. that, that all of the the push, whether it was, you know, Stan doing what he did at the Australian Open, which was huge. Um, you had, you know, a uh, uh, Golbis coming back and, and beating Federer at the French um, and, and, pull, and having his run. That was pretty big. Milos and Grigor making their first slam semifinals uh, at Wimbledon. And even Kyrgios there. Yeah, exactly. And Nick Kyrgios upsetting Rafael Nadal. I mean, there has there have been these clear and telltale signs of a change coming through the ATP, a younger change. But as Roger Federer noted at Indian Wells, it was still the big guys winning everything yeah. and not only winning everything, but competing for everything. You know, Roger basically said at Indian Wells, yeah, okay, we talk about all this, but at the end of the day, yeah, okay, Alexander Dogopolov had a big win. Milos Raonic had a big win. But hey, it's me and Novak in the final. So what right. are we talking about, really? Yeah. Which is a totally fair, I think, argument. And same exact scenario at, at Wimbledon, actually. Exactly, exactly. So I think that that was a totally fair argument at the time. Now, looking at what happened and, and how... Because again, if this had been, if this had felt really fluky, the kind of the way that Wimbledon kind of felt at the time, like I would dismiss it. But seeing Nishikori do what he did, seeing Chilich do what he did, 
Like that was really incredible. I mean, that was impressive stuff. And even Akirios doing what he did, you know, he obviously got completely, he got his ass handed to him and got a, a, a an education from Tommy Robredo. Yeah, he only made the third round at this one. Yeah, I know, but like it was it for me my favorite match of the of the entire tournament. Personally, I loved that match. Everything about it, it was fun. It was fun, and Nick did what he could. I mean, he was flashy. He was amazing. He made you gasp, and then Tommy Robredo just put him into put him and the rest of us into a sleeper hold. It was so and showed everybody how to play tennis, and it was so Debbie Downer. And but it was like amazing in the way that he did it. It was so get off my lawn the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and the best, my favorite moment of the whole tournament is where someone like late in the he lost in four someone late in the fourth set shot like where's your swagger nick or something and then next point curios hits a forehand winner and shouts swag <laughs> and it was so ridiculous like what anyway curios will be fun curios yeah. is not curious is the kind of person who i don't have doubts about the transition i mean they put him in a night session essentially he really was the headliner ahead of yeah Robredo in that night session for sure in terms of just in terms of You're right. star power. And he and handled he delivered. it well. He totally delivered. People were you not know? unhappy with that match at all in the stand. Yeah, exactly. So we've seen this this constant wave, you know, and just kind of like, and and I really, it's hard for me to shake that the idea that the dam broke in, in with on that Saturday with Nisha Corey and Chilich winning. But, we, you know, I'm also smart enough to know that that there should be caution. And, and for all we know, first of all, Rafa wasn't there. And I think Rafa is a total game changer if he's in yeah, the draw. That's a question. That's a question we got. We can get to that right now to expand on it. From Allegria, would Rafa have made the Open different? Yes, completely. I mean, let's not ignore the fact that Marin Cilic came out of the Ferrer quarter. You're right. Right. The weakest quarter, that's where he came out of. Now, he beat Federer in the semifinal, thank goodness, because that effectively validated his entire tournament, right. especially the way that he did it. And he beat Burdick in, in the quarter, too, which is a solid sure. win. Sure, it's a solid win. But Burdick just has been slumping. I don't know. I would have asterisked that one that's just fine. a little bit. And he also routed him in Wimbledon as well. So he kind of has his number. Yeah. But, yeah, he came out of the weakest side of the draw. Nisha Corey also kind of came out of that Vavrinka quarter which was obviously the weaker side compared to yeah. what Djokovic had at the top with Sanga was in there Murray was in there it wasn't necessarily easy so if Rafa's there I mean one of the things that we really I don't think we took it for granted less necessarily but maybe it was one of the le- the it wasn't talked about it as much at, at the time is that because we had the big four and when they were the number one through four they each had their quarter and it created balance within the draw and what we've seen over the last, you know, couple of years now is when Rafa's not there, if Andy's not there, if one of them is not there, or if Federer's not playing well, you know, whatever it is, it creates this really weird shift in the balance of the draw that creates these opportunities. And so I, I do think if Rafa's there, I do think it's different. I mean, he's such a game changer. He can beat everybody, obviously. He has a winning record against everybody. Yeah. So, but um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I, I think just for... Total draw stability. I completely agree. It's the main effect Rafa would have had, and and Murray being in the Djokovic quarter also is massively important. I mean, even just regardless of it being Nishikori and Chilich specifically, the fact that we had a final that came out of those two quarters of the draws was bizarre. I would never would have bet on that. Yeah, the odds of any one finalist coming out of either of those would have been pretty high. So yeah, they did it, and I think we got really spoiled in terms of draw stability on the men's side with the big four anchoring them and then getting very regularly at least three of the four into the semifinals. Um, and we still got two in the semifinals. That's the thing. I mean, right. like I said, this was only one weird day 
away from being a totally normal tournament results-wise on the men's side. But at the same time, we also saw Gael Monfils kind of yeah. like play a match in which he believed, which he tried to, so hard to win in four sets and played so well in that quarterfinal against uh, Federer. Yep. So, you know, I, I just I just really do think that there has been, you know, and Chilich talked about it a lot after he beat Federer and then after he won the title, uh, that there has been a, a change. I didn't really buy into this whole idea like around the spring of this year when everybody was like oh we saw stan win so we all believe i kind of called bullshit on that i really didn't believe it at all yeah and i think i even asked Golbis that directly in rome i was like so everybody's saying that bullshit or no like you know and he was yeah. like whatever he said bullshit I'm, i yeah, i had the yeah. same question with him too and exactly. but ronich said he totally bought into it i mean it, it's you know it's everybody's own truth whatever works for you if it sure. inspires you and emboldens you okay and well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we but don't know now, what Chilich thought at the point, time because no one talked to him. Right. But at this point, I just feel like there have been enough results that it's not just a Vavrinka, that there is a, you can look at everybody, right? And you can right. look at this whole crew of like 10, 15 players who are really making a move up the rankings and show and proving themselves that that, in, that shows now proof to me that, that there has been a change in the mindset of the ATP locker room. And I think it's great. I really do. I mean, I, I understand the critique from a business perspective of a, of a Nisha Corey Chilich final, but I think it's so good for tennis. And I think that it's so good for the health of the tour to constantly remind these guys who are second, third line that these wins are possible um, and not to just throw in the towel. It's going to, it's going to trickle down. It's going to make like the masters in the five hundreds, like way more interesting and way more competitive okay. than they have been. Let's put a number on it in 2015. How many slams get won by the big four according Oh. I'm still I'm still saying three, and I'm closer to yeah. saying four than two. No, yeah, I would I I would say three. Yeah, I would say three. Um, yeah, I'd set the line at three. Yeah, that's about right. And then yeah. Masters, Masters, I think can get opened up more. I'd be willing. I'd be willing. Except to bet that, that we line. haven't really seen that. That's the weird thing. Right. Arguably, well, Songa won one this year. Yeah, and so did Vavrinka, but arguably the slams have been opened up more than the Masters. Fifty no, percent of the majors go to non-top big four guys. I know that that statistically it's tough to use that as a metric, but yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, Nisha Corey should have won Madrid. Yeah, no, he should have. He came. So, he was up a set and a break and, and got hurt. Yeah. And the funny thing is, and we talked about WTA chaos. We had two first-time winners on the ATP side this year, and all the women were repeat winners. What up? <laughs> you know, those old stable ladies. Uh, which those pre- old ladies winning slams again. <laughs> it's so it's so old. It's so predictable. The ATP, now the ATP is going to sell it like, first time slam winners are the best thing ever. Like, because they control the na- Hormones narrative. Hormones are awesome. Exactly. Um, Unpredictability is the best. Here's a question from May Jewel, which we touched on a little bit, but get more directly. What was more surprising or improbable? Bartoli winning Wimbledon or Chilich winning the U.S. Open? Oh, Chilich. I think so, too. And just yeah. just because if you're making a list of, like, possible winners at Wimbledon that year, I just I just don't think Chilich would have necessarily even been, like, as high as his seating on the list if I was making a list, yeah. honestly. And that's number 14. Like, he did nothing leading into this tournament. Absolutely nothing. Not that Bartoli had a good 2013 before her title. She really didn't. But... She had shown abilities to zone before and to blast she'd through been, a draw. She'd made, she'd made the Wimbledon final before. Right, exactly, she had beaten yeah. Justine Hennen, you know, and and Chilich has never he's never really had a signature win. I mean, he's had you know wins over Andy Murray, but who hasn't? And he had a win over um, Andy Roddick that got him into the semis, right. of The Australian in 2010. 
Right. And that was his like, and that was four years ago, nearly five. Right. And had, had no clear carryover at all. Never, yeah. like you said, you pointed out, he never made a master semifinal ever, much less a final. And he was, he had, he did nothing to expect this. So to, to make anyone have any rational reason to If anybody, that. basically, if anybody told you that they totally believed that Marin Cilic was going to win this tournament before it started, they're lying. Or they're just like the biggest Marin Cilic fan and they pick him to win everything that he plays, even in tournaments he's not entered in. Like, that's the level of fandom <laughs> that it would have taken. Which... God bless you if that if that is your level oh, of Marin Cilic fandom. Bless and lo- and and like enjoy your moment because it's great. I mean, I mean there isn't anybody who doesn't like Cilic. He's a such very a nice, nice guy. guy. So he's, nice, well spoken. He's incredibly great. friendly off court and mm-hmm. much warmer than he comes off. Um, I don't. I think he's really, and this is not his fault, obviously. I think he's pretty low on on court charisma um, in terms of just sort of showmanship or you know stage presence. Yeah. I don't think he has much of that, especially, I mean, compared to the big four, obviously, or even like a Del Potro, who I think really has a lot for someone who plays a similar sort of game. Yeah. Um, or a Favrinka or Favrinka. a Dimitrov. I don't think, I don't think Nishikori has much too, honestly. No, I think Nishikori's yeah. game but is a little more endearing. His, his exactly. And his game. I think people like you know, the idea of, do you have an undersized guy from Japan coming in and being a giant slayer? It's a, you know, sort of a more fun narrative than Chilich. Sure. But um, yeah. So how about Chilich? Let's talk about Chilich just specifically for a second. Is this the start of something for him? Does he win another slam, let's say, in the next two years? Do we see him back in a, in a winning a slam in a slam final even? Is he, or is this a lightning in a bottle, things broke his way situation? I don't know. I, know. <laughs> I really, I have no idea. I mean, if he plays the way that he played against Burdick and uh, Federer and Nishikori, yeah, he's going to have chances both at the Australian Open, where he already made the semifinals before this year, and then at the U.S. Open, which he's obviously now won. So on the hard courts, which we've always known, he's a threat. Hell, he could go to the World Tour Finals and win it. Yeah. Indoor. He's already nice, in. Fast, yeah, he's, he's effectively in. He's not for sure in, but right. he's in. Um, but yeah, so, you know, not so much clay, obviously grass, who knows, you know, big serve, maybe, you know, that there was, there's a crazy stat about the fact that he hit the most aces at the U S open, uh, since Roddick won in 2003. I did not see that stat. Wow. Yeah, and that's surprising because he didn't play a lot of long matches either. Exactly. He had a retirement and he had a Baghdadis retirement in the first round. Yeah. And he had a, so, only one five setter and Roddick had at least one five setter in his title run. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that's where you get it. And Roddick played more long sets. I mean, Chilich wasn't a tiebreak king either. So right, right. Yeah. So pretty impressive stat. So if he plays the way that he played, it's just the question is, it's almost like a kind of, I don't know, uh, Kvitova esque kind of situation where it's like, well, yeah, the way that she knows how to play tennis, of course she can win like yeah. six slams before her career's over. But who knows if she can summon that on a regular basis? So that's the big question for Chilich. I do think that he will handle like the being a slam winner thing, like better than a Vavrinka, for example, just, I think his makeup is a little bit more stable. Yeah. But yeah, I have no, I have no freaking idea. <laughs> and I think that, I think that Wimbledon is actually, you told me that Marin Cilic was going to win a slam in 2014. <laughs> I'm like, oh, seriously. And then secondly, <laughs> I would have been like probably Wimbledon because he's had good results at Queens club. And right. he's a big server and he can kind of catch fire there. And that draw can fall apart a little bit easier. Um, so I could totally see him winning a Wimbledon in the next two years. Absolutely. Because especially with Federer kind of on the outs, there's no real pure grass court 
favorite type player out there, I don't think, um, who's really in the upper tier of the game. And so, yeah, I could totally see him winning Wimbledon next in the next two years, especially if the coaching arrangement with Ivanisevic stays fruitful and in place. Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic, the two guys who've lost in the semifinals. I got asked this on in a TV interview, and I was stumped for an awkwardly long amount of time. <laughs> Who had the more disappointing semifinal, Djokovic or Federer? Djokovic. I think so, too. That was my yeah. answer. Because Federer just got beat. Yeah, that was the he thing. just Fed- got beat. Federer just got a guy who was playing much better than him and didn't give him a chance. Djokovic, his like, body failed him. Yeah. In a very his winnable bod- match against a guy with a lot of question marks about fitness. Exactly. I think that that was the most – I felt like Federer's performance was not disappointing in the way that Djokovic's was because Djokovic was playing a winnable match. I mean, Nishikori was not playing out of his mind tennis, you know, and um, on that sort of hot day, and especially in light of like Djokovic kind of remaking himself into the Iron Man of tennis, you know, I mean, Nishikori was looking across the, 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 the net and seeing a guy who looked worse for the wear than he was. Yeah. And I think that that really inspired Kay to play, you know, to believe that he could win this match. And, when things got tight and when Novak was up against it, he never found a way to raise his level. And I found that very disappointing from his point of view. So, you know, I mean, obviously his life is in flux and emotions are all over the place and yada, yada, yada. But given how well he had played going into that Nishikori match, that was that was a pretty surprisingly flat uh, performance from him. I totally agree. And I think that that's absolutely right just in terms of effort that day. On paper, to the extent that counts, it's Federer. Because he's getting older, and he had a chance to beat Marin Cilic for a chance to beat Kaney Shikori for a Grand Slam final for title. And obviously, he didn't get. He did, I think Cilic took that out of his hands completely. I mean, that match was not close at all. That was a beatdown. Yeah. That Cilic put on Federer, and Federer had had that long five setter against Monfils around before, and had the shorter rest compared to Nishikori and Djokovic in the first semi. Um, but yeah, that was rough for both and a lot of questions of was this his last best chance and I mean, who knows i mean he's had two last best chances in the last two slams so. yeah, and he's just narrowly missed out I, I do want to just give a shout out because this was my favorite tweet of the entire tournament because it made me laugh so hard um but it's from uh his name is jason he is at hurley tennis on twitter and his tweet was, it's starting to feel like the closest Roger will get to number 18 is while leaving through a barely legal porno mag. <laughs> Ew. Ew, but I laughed so hard and I wanted to like retweet it so badly, but I wasn't sure if I could or couldn't or like whatever if it was obscene. So I'm reading it off on our podcast. So there we go. Uncensored NCR, you guys. <laughs> Creepy. Roger. It, I, I don't want to. But I, but I, but it, but it it did capture it. Like it really did feel like watching him just kind of get his ass handed to him by Chilich. That that you know, in this situation when everything was breaking his way, he still couldn't get it done. You know, like it. That was obviously a reminder of how difficult it is, obviously, to win seven matches in a major. Right. But but to fall short these last couple of times when it's it's just been right there, um, has been. I don't know. I like I, I I wrote um in my report card for sports illustrated that, that there's enough evidence to argue both sides of the Roger argument right now. Yeah. There's enough, there's enough to say that he's gotten so close that things just have to break 
a little bit more his way or just, you know, like whatever for him to get the next one. And then there's the other side, which says, yeah, he's gotten close and he's failed every single time. And maybe at some point that's a pattern. Federer is possibly half full or half empty. It all depends on how you look at it. So that was the men's side. Meanwhile, the women's draw only had one of the top nine seeds make it to the quarterfinals. And it looked like a picture of stability by the end. Serena Williams won the women's tournament, her sixth U.S. Open title. It's her most at any slam to date. She beat Carolyn Wozniacki 6-3, 6-3. Interestingly, or not really interesting, but weirdly, all five sets that were played in the singles finals ended 6-3. Courtney, what will you remember most about the women's tournament? I will remember that Serena finally did it. I think that the tournament was really just about Serena and yeah. and. That was the focus going into it, um, and she delivered um, at the end of it. Didn't drop a set, didn't lose more than three games in any given set throughout the entire tournament. Remarkable. Had a pretty easy draw yep. um, in the big scheme of things. I mean, everybody wanted to make a big light big light at the beginning of the tournament about how, oh, Stozer's in her section, Ivanovich is in her section, Bouchard, Pe- uh, Kvitova are in the bottom half, could meet in the semis, but... I I just remember looking at it and being like, I don't see any of those people making it through. I thought it was a really good draw for Serena, um, and she took advantage of it. So, you know, to finally get 18 off her back, I think sets her up well. I think the most impressive thing about her run was that she didn't play her best tennis. I thought that the way she played in the Cincinnati final was still at a higher level than anything she delivered uh, at the Open. So that's just my opinion. Your mileage may vary. I would say, Spotty, she definitely wasn't at her best in the final. That's for sure against Wilson. Oh, for sure, that was, yeah. That was an ugly match. Both. It wasn't good. Um, I think she played really well against Makarova in the semi. I think she played well. Against oh, yeah, Makarova was and good. And she played well against Kanepi. And she didn't play bad against Panetta either um, at all. She so, didn't play bad. But she, was, she, was, she wasn't at her. It wasn't untouchable. Right. But, yeah, the Makarova and the Kanepi matches I both thought were pretty, pretty solid. But, yeah, no, she wasn't. This wasn't Serena in 2012 Olympics you know, beast mode. So, no, but I, I, I agree. And, uh, yeah, but she did it, and she moved it from being a weight off her shoulders onto her wrist. Uh-huh, hey uh-huh. See what I did there? It was a bracelet joke. Yeah. It's awkward. It's pretty good joke, so you have to explain it. Yeah, so Serena wins. She was happy. She was relieved. She was supposed to win. She never got scared. So this salvages her year on some level. Obviously, there's a huge difference between zero and one. Uh, especially ending with a slam, I think it's a lot easier in terms of not having huge question marks going into Australia. I mean, man, if she had finished this year slamless, this would have been a real failure for her, especially if she had been a number one without a slam, which she was very close to one loss away from doing because she clinched the post-US Open number one ranking pretty early in the tournament with everyone else going out. Yeah, when she made the quarterfinals. Yeah, it was interesting. We were at her post-winning uh, t- press, and she said that she felt like if she had been number one without winning a slam, she wouldn't have deserved it. So at least she's consistent. At least she's uh, consistent. Yeah. Although, at the, at the same time, she also mentioned, although I did win other tournaments, and I almost wanted to blurt out, like Rome. Like Rome. Rome of the Madrid, <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that, yeah, it was really all about Trina. Obviously, solid... Oscar nomination for her co-stars, uh, uh, Caroline Wozniacki. Yep. Um, just had a really good tournament, did Caroline. And I just really thought that 
it spoke volumes when Caroline in her semifinal press conference kind of basically said that, you know, I've already had a good tournament. I'm going to try my hardest on my final, but this has been a really good two weeks for me. I think that was in a lot of ways, kind of like the, the mental edge in, in different ways. Cause I mean, Serena had to win that match and Caroline didn't. Um, and because to me, like her beating Maria was really the highlight of her tournament and in a lot of ways, competitive wise and tennis wise, the highlight of the women's tournament. Match I thought that was the best think, yeah. yeah, match of the tournament. Um, you know, the best level, um, and the best kind of com- competition and intes- intensity and all that. So, yeah, but at the end of the day, Serena reigns. And so long as Serena wins the tournament, it, it's, it, this sounds really weird, but so long as Serena wins the tournament, it's almost like nothing that happens before that matters. It's not a story. It's yeah, all about... this stuff about the nine seeds losing and, and you know, Petra going out early and Halep going out early and Jeannie and Maria. It's like, okay, well, whatever. Because, like, at the end of the day, Serena won like she was going to do anyway. So it's harder to read into the, those results. I think it's worth noting, just in mentioning, that Serena didn't have a tough draw. To that extent, yeah, that's totally fair. She didn't play a top ten player. Which I think, if I'm counting correctly, makes her the third woman this year to win a slam without being a top 10 player along the way. Which is kind of crazy, because both Lena and Kvitova did it too. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about Kvitova. You're right, yeah. So, yeah, that's something that doesn't often happen, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so the women have had some... Have- Marion Bartoli, trendsetter. Trendsetter. Marion didn't even beat anybody top 15. Her <laughs> highest seed was like number 17, Sloan. She really went for it hard there. Marion's spirit lives on through Marion Chilich, I think it's fair to say. Marion, Marion, just one letter. Maybe the same person. We never know. We'll never know. Yeah, so let's talk about Wozniacki, though. Wozniacki made it to a slam final, played really well, not in the slam final itself. Uh, that was a little bit surprising for me. But I think that's where one match where I really do think the whole friendship aspect of WTA life, which people roll their eyes at it being a narrative, and it's totally fair, and it's totally a thing that gets brought up more for the girls and the guys. But I just did not see Caroline summoning any of the same compete level against Serena in this occasion, knowing how much it meant to Serena than she had in any of her other matches that tournament. And maybe that's just yeah. me knowing that and looking for that, but didn't it just she was so flat. I totally agree with that, 100%. And let's not forget that, like, I mean, I thought it was great that both Golbis and team were like, yeah, that sucked when they had to play each other. Yeah. Like, that it wasn't, like, they did not enjoy it. It was awkward. They didn't like it. Um, It got in the way. I thought that Golbis, it was in, really interesting that Golbis totally copped to it. That yeah. it was way more emotional and nervy than he thought it was going to be, playing his good friend. So, it happens with the guys, too. Let's yeah. not even pretend. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but it was it was it was disappointing performance from her for sure. Um, I really just think, I mean, let's not forget she very not very easily, but there was a chance she could have gone out in the semis. Oh yeah. So you know, I really think that that her peak was that match against Maria, she, winning six six four two six six two, and she killed Arani after that too. Yeah, she yeah, that's true. She did kill Arani. She did kill Arani. Yeah, I mean, a, a kind of a, a petered out finish. For oh, her. I see what you did there. I did. I did. Is she back? What I mean, obviously, she was playing much differently than she had in a lot of the past two years. She's being much more aggressive than she has been, I think, in her career. Honestly, in terms of what she did against Sharapova, it was more. She was more like a a counterpuncher with remarkable speed than a retriever, and that was a huge difference in that match. And I think that got shut off in the Serena match completely. She went back to being a retriever. She hit 
didn't hit a ground stroke winner until the final game of the match. And that was the 18th game of the match. It took a long time. And if I recall, it may have been her fourth winner of the match. Yeah, and the other three were aces. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean... I think that it's always very interesting that Caroline Wozniacki will never actually cop to ever in her career playing defensive tennis. It's this, she's, it's this weird thing she has where she's like, she thinks it's a slur. Yeah, like she it, just won't, but she will never buy into it. it was even, of, when you're, yeah. even when you're trying to get her to buy into this idea of like, well, you're playing more aggressive now. She'll be like, well, I've always been aggressive. And then we all have to sit there and stifle laughter because that is a total lie. <laughs> it's one of those things she always says, like, I always try to hit winners when I can. Like, no, you don't. You just <laughs> that is a out, lie. It's flat that out a, not that true. That is a fucking lie. I'm sorry. That is a lie of just epic Jim Carrey proportions. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You do not. You are now. And that's the big difference. But she, it's diff- but she won't buy into that idea that she's playing so much differently now than she was a year ago. Yeah. She'll just say, I'm playing better. She has to know it. I right? don't know. She has to be aware that she's playing different tennis, right? It, or is this all, you know, somehow an out-of-body experience for her, this playing offense versus defense? Well, I just don't know how one can look at their stats and say, oh, I hit two winners in a match and, like, thinks, like, yeah, I'm an offensive player. Right. She also is the only person who ever brags about being able to turn offense into defense. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I, I do think she's a good person to have back in the top of the game. I think she's a very, talk about in terms of the men's side, in terms of the engaging personalities that sell the game. Wozniacki is absolutely that on the women's side. She has been her whole career. I mean, She punches above her weight class. She punches in that way above her weight class. People really gravitate towards her around the world. She just puts butts in seats, and that's important. Even for the even WTA. before Rory, even before Rory, and after. I mean, mm-hmm. and during, obviously. But all of that. I mean, she's someone who is a name that has sort of a little bit, in its own way, transcended the sport in a way that not a lot of people have been able to do. I have friends who don't know anything about tennis and who Wozniacki is, who couldn't pick Azarenka, for example, out of a lineup. Right, that's the name that I was going to compare it to, to an yeah. Azarenka who's won two majors. Caroline right. hasn't. Uh, Caroline's obviously been number one, but. People gravitate to her. People just like her, and and that uh, that um, it, it's not just a fan thing. I mean, even you can. I mean, I don't know about you, Ben, but there's a different vibe in Caroline press conferences than other. Pre- I'm not just saying Azarenka, like other press conferences. Like people seem to just you can tell like the press corps just seems to like her. Um, she gets I don't know. treated. She's always gotten treated as relevant, which is an interesting yeah, sort of I guess gift that's to true. have. Which I think people. I mean, I we sit where we are in the press room, we sit near people who don't do a lot of tennis. Um, like we're both near like the Newsday and the New York daily news desks and stuff. And so you sort of hear people who do one tennis term in a year for the most part who work in those places. And they understand Wozniacki as a, as a story, as a character people care about. And I get a lot of that has to do with Rory. I'm sure, especially this year and that whole sort of narrative, but overall that's important. And, and it's a credit to her that she's been able to engage people and, like we said, I think Curios has that same sort of gift, and it's just a mm-hmm. unquantifiable thing that comes uh, can come in all sorts of different ways. No, oh, it's totally true. Some players just have it, yeah. you know that that X factor that um, interests people, yeah. that makes you want to stare at them for two hours or three hours or four hours. That makes you want to watch their tennis. That makes you want to talk to them, and that's not because they're necessarily nice or they play like a great style of tennis or like whatever, but there's just, you know, that's why they call it next factor. It's kind of unquantifiable, right. uh, you know, inexplicable really. Charisma. Uh, but level. yeah, charisma. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. 
one question we got on the women's side, which is a constant question. I probably should mention it when we were talking about her directly, but from Jean Simeon, who asks us, can Serena reach Steffi Graf's mark of 22 majors? That's That was the big question after I mean, this whole year. I mean, I think everybody really thought that she was going to get 18. But is 22 too much? Four more is a lot more. Big difference between 18 and 22. I will go first and say I think it will be close, but no. I think she'll get to 20 or 21, but I don't see 22. Yourself, Courtney? I'm going to go a little bit bigger on Serena. I can see her tying. Okay. Uh, so four, I think, is definitely doable um, because effectively... I think she's got to she get at will... least two next year, though. Right. Yeah. But I don't see her quitting after a year. I mean, I see her in the sport for another two to three years. I mean, obviously, definitely through through Rio. Okay. So that gives her a shot at ostensibly 12... What is that? Uh, yeah, 12 slams. Mm-hmm. That she'll have an opportunity to win a third of them. Not completely out of the question, especially when you consider one of those is Wimbledon. Wait, through and... Rio... There's only seven more slams before Rio. Oh, sorry. I, I was thinking three years, not to Rio, okay. but I was doing the calculation based off of, sure. I just think that she has like three more years or okay. so okay. Um, in her. Um, But yeah, so, you know, I mean, you consider one of those is Wimbledon, where if she's on, you know, she's pretty unbeatable there. U.S. Open, obviously the success there. Australian Open, you know, always been pretty good there, although hasn't been uh, recently. Um, And you just consider the French to be kind of the toughest one. It's doable to me to 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 catch Graf. I I don't know, I don't know about twenty three, but I think twenty two is is definitely doable. And and some of the level that she displayed, particularly in the last um, couple of weeks or uh, last month, both in Cincinnati and at the U.S. Open, that level, that's good enough to win three of the four majors. Okay, that's totally fair. It's that's a, my argument. There you go. I just I just think that with health uncertainties and with just the unknown is mostly why I'm hesitant. But that's... Which is also totally fair because yeah. this year happened. <laughs> right, exactly. And this year, she still managed one even though, mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, this is a year where if I would have had much more faith in, her, faith in her doing it if she hadn't had three slams implode this year. That looked like where she was the odds-on favorite going in. But I, but I kind of feel like this year was actually much more understandable than if she slumps next year to me okay. because she had such a great year last year and also like the six months of the year before that a letdown was gonna come at some point mm-hmm. i mean I, I remember i kept asking her that constantly like towards the end of last year like is all of this play gonna catch up with you how are you doing physically the off season was so short all these sorts of things and so it almost i mean australia middle east um even the the french it, it kind of made sense to me um, what was going on with her? Wimbledon was a bit weirder, but um, yeah. So it, now she's gotten the U.S. Open, full of motivation, got 18 off her back, goes into 2015. I don't know. I think a little bit pressure free in a yeah. lot of ways. So so that's where I kind of feel like if she can get like two next year, maybe even three. Massive. Right. If she gets three next year, I absolutely think she gets one more after that. I'll I'll say that way. Um, <laughs> which is not a. If she gets a 21, sure she'll get 22. Um, one thing I would say also is that she's talked publicly and more Taglu has also about having more of a scheduling emphasis on the Grand Slams in 2015, mm-hmm. which probably means things like, I'm guessing we might not see her at Charleston. I'm guessing. Bastard. Bastard, yeah. Bastard. Although she has a contract to fill there, so we'll see. Maybe she shows up. <laughs> 
to Bastad, but like even like a Stanford, she might not do again. Mm-hmm. Even like um, like Beijing. I mean, in the fall part of the year. I mean, maybe even affecting this fall. I don't know. She's still scheduled for everything, but we'll see what she does there. Um, yeah, it'll be different, and she's scaling back to her previous schedule because yeah, these were not typical three years for her scheduling wise. Right. Um, the other thing on graph I wanted to ask about, um, and I wanted to ask you particularly because I know you were a pretty big Steffi fan back in the day. Um, still am. Still am. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> is that Steffi has been pretty much invisible from the sport. Mm-hmm. Especially this sport that the champions come back constantly and you could say never seem to leave, but in a good way. Uh, for a lot of them, a lot of people still are there every year the Royal Box, Wimbledon, all that sort of stuff. Um, obviously, Bartoli is an extreme example of this. She's been just as present since retirement as before. When during the trophy ceremony, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova came out to pose with Serena, and those were the photos that got used everywhere in terms of almost every article about it, was her standing next to those two people. I'm not exactly sure I'm going with this, but do you think that Steffi should be more visible? She was the only one, because she's kind of re-relevant through this whole narrative being built now, that she's the next one to, for Serena to catch. She's the only one of the very few who skipped the number one's reunion last year at Wimbledon. The others all had excuses, more or less, in that they had either lost at Wimbledon with some sort of injury earlier in the tournament or Kleister's I think was pregnant and that was it. I don't know. Do you, would you like to see Steffi around more? Does it matter? I don't think it matters. No. I mean, if anything, I think that it's much more, I'm not, this is going to sound so weird because it's going to sound like a dig towards other people and it's not, this is just focused on, on Steffi. I just think it's that it's really cool for somebody to like, be so involved in the sport and be able to step away. I think that in a lot of ways we see sometimes not, this is not just tennis. This is in other sports as well, where like great champions, they finish their careers and they realize that actually they're not prepared for a life outside of tennis because obviously that's been their entire education. That's their entire social circle, professional circle, all of their connections and networking, all that sort of things. That's the only way is that they can like earn money actually is through tennis and so they kind of stick around and some of them aren't good at what they do and they're just kind of you know glory hogs or still almost like you know the homecoming king that when you go back to like your high school reunion in 10 years is like this fat slob who works at like blockbuster and everybody else has moved on with their life and he's like still wearing his letterman jacket sort of thing like that's i think tarnishes a great champion's legacy but with Steffi, like, we get to remember her as the great champion she was on the court. And there's nothing off court to really distract us from her. You know, I mean, like, for example, you can see that with, like, a Chris Everett, who is obviously commentating for ESPN. And and because of that visibility, I think people maybe don't take her as seriously. Maybe they do. I mean, it's 50-50. But, you know, th- there may be a lack of respect there. Or it, um, it, just, it just becomes more familiar. You know, she's a little bit. Right. I mean, I wouldn't. Lack of respect. I mean, yeah, people, not everyone loves her commentating, for sure. I guess it's just in terms of, yeah, she's not elusive, or she's not, um, yeah, yeah, elusive, I guess is the word, or, uh, it's no no longer, I guess, special to see Chris Everett, that makes sense. I mean, Chris Everett's just so available doing a lot of tournaments now, and credit to her for obviously staying connected to the game, and there's a lot to be said for that alternate take, too, especially when you're someone like her who is you know, set for life, presumably, with her academy. For sure. No, that's a very good point. But, you know, yeah. 
Yeah. No, so I, I think that it just kind of adds to the Steffi mystique. I mean, she was kind of a mysterious player when she was playing, and she continues to be afterwards. And so it, the fact that there's a consistency there just makes me love her more. There you go. Um, we should segue to the semifinalists for the women briefly uh, before getting into larger issues connected to one of them. Just say that no one had really – I'd never heard anyone make the looks comparison between Makarova and Steffi before this tournament. I totally Really? I'd never heard that before. Oh my gosh, I feel like that's like a common thing. I'd never heard that. I'm clearly yeah. not reading the right Steffi tumblers or something. I don't know. No, you just don't read all your tweets, so that happens. That's happen. Let's talk more about the other semifinalist, Peng Shui. Played a great tournament, beating Radvanska out of nowhere early on and backed that up with more wins, beating Safarova in the fourth round to make the quarters, and then beating Belinda Bencic, who was a breakout teen. Uh, we didn't even mention yet this show, which shows what a weird tournament this was, that a teenager makes the, semif- the quarterfinals and gets to be a relatively small story by the end. Uh, then in the semifinals, things went not well for Peng Shui. After being in a very tight match, uh, losing the first set in a tiebreak, and being just a breakdown in a very non-serve dominated match at 4-3 in the second Pong started to seize up, which w- w- looked like cramps that were seemed to be brought on by some sort of heat illness. Uh, she, that's how the doctors described it. She was helped off the court, saying, I don't want to give up, I don't want to give up. Uh, she got brought off the court mid-game, spending quite a long time off court. She came back, played a few more points, and then collapsed to the ground, and the match was called off. It was unclear if by her or by the trainers or the exactly who pulled the plug was a little murky, but it was a bizarre scene for a Grand Slam semifinal. Um, even though it seems like, from what I can tell, all the rules and procedures were pretty much ha- handled by the book in terms of the actions people took, uh, left a lot of people with some bad taste in their mouth or just some discomfort about the whole how it unfolded. Courtney, do you think there are any changes that should be spurred from the incident, or what can we what can we learn from that pung collapse? Well, I think I think that the first thing is that better there needs to be better communication um, when the when, you know when it's all happening. I think that one of the most disappointing commentary moments of the tournament for me was was you know hearing John McEnroe just kind of blast uh, you know all oh, this puts a black eye on tennis and uh, and all these people being like wait a second you can't take an mto for cramps uh, you know they're breaking the rules like everybody was going off about this and because there hadn't been communication at that point that no this is actually not cramps which is what it obviously looked like from the outsider point of view but it had, it had been diagnosed as heat illness which kicks in a, a separate set of rules which does allow you to have an evaluation to have a, a medical timeout obviously you can't take a medical timeout for for cramping so you know soul cramping so that's you know i think that it could have been handled a lot better to where people didn't freak out about it and make it a bigger deal than it was secondly i do think that like doctors need to be i think we saw this um during the the Serena incident, I think that there needs to be more empowerment for the medical staff to step in and say, no, you cannot play. You're not in a position to do it. And I understand, obviously, the reluctance to do that because effectively you're costing this player money um, to the extent they, they want to keep playing. But Peng Shui should have never been allowed back on the court. If she's been diagnosed with heat illness, heat illness continuing to be out in that heat can only hurt you. Exerting herself, yeah. Exactly. She was not going to have a miraculous recovery. 
there was no way. So they should have thrown the towel in the minute that they diagnosed it as such. And um, so, you know, and again, with Serena, there should have been a doctor who was empowered to step in and say, you're not based on what I'm seeing. At the the Wimbledon doubles, you're saying. Yeah, at the Wimbledon doubles, I'm sorry. Um, So I think that's something as well. And then the third issue that came up for me was I just really feel like that whole cramping rule, which also came into to, to, um, the spotlight with Steve Johnson yep. and his retirement. But there needs to be, and even a little bit of Andy Murray as well in his first round match. Like, if you are undergoing cramps, but it's a symptom of heat illness, can you be treated for the cramps? I don't know. It's like, a you know, weird like, gray area. It's a super weird gray area and there needs to be some definition. And so long as tennis, and this applies to so many different things in this sport, like so long as tennis doesn't create these hard and fast rules, it seems like a complete JV sport. Like we're just out there playing a game that isn't actually serious. It's like, no, like if somebody goes over 25 seconds, they violated the rule. You enforce it. Like no, not, I mean, not a, I can't think of a lot of other sports where there's so many judgment calls where umpires are expected to like do the right thing right. as opposed to just a hard and fast rule that's like if you break it you get penalized. Right, the time rule especially is just kind of embarrassing. If you explain it's that to somebody else outside the sport, like okay, yeah, it's like twenty seconds, but no one actually calls twenty seconds. Sometimes if it's like thirty-one or thirty-two, they'll and call like, it. And like he kind of ran around a lot, so <laughs> like maybe we should give it. It's like the what other the hell point was exhausting, about? so they were like, yeah. just take a breather, Rafa, or whatever, you know. And it's like, get- oh, I know it's over twenty-five seconds, but the crowd just kept clapping. It's you know, it's it, the sport sounds so freaking ridiculous it sounds like not a real professional sport on the honestly it's that's very fair on the rules thing the one rule i would change i would make pretty quickly and i think this came up in the uh, checker blood pressure situation also i think if you are deemed necessary or yourself or the trainer to have a mid-game medical timeout attention you should forfeit that single game 100 percent. that seems very fair i don't think you should get to the changeover which is the rule for Right. Whatever they were suggesting for cramps or something, you can only get treated during changeovers, and that's fine. I don't, and that's extreme, I think, especially for a situation like a Grand Slam final. This would have, that would have ended the match in this situation because it was right. four three in the second. But one game, if it does end the match, okay, whatever. You're pretty close to the finish line anyway. I yeah, that seems like an easy switch for me. I don't, I think that could be adopted tomorrow, and I don't know who would object. Other than that, I think the heat rules are yeah, just murky and. It was a ugly scene, but it's kind of thing that happens. I mean, it happens in sports and outdoor sports and in the summer. These things happen. This happens to uh, runners, obviously, and to other various people in extreme and I, conditions. Yeah, and I do think that what happens in tennis, and this applies across the board to so many different issues, is that because there's such kind of a personal attachment to a single player, obviously you're spending an hour, two hours, three hours, six hours watching a single player, two players on a court. Right. That that, you know, you can see this in tennis fandom. There's a very easy way to kind of um relate to that player, to feel like you know that player. Oh, totally. There's a, a personification um and 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 connection with that player that you don't get when you root on a team. Which is great about the sport. Which is great about the sport. But what happens is like you see like for example, none of us watching Peng Shui go through what she was going through was sitting there saying, you know, suck it up 
and, you know, retire, somebody DQ her, um, she should be off the court, because there's kind of like this emotional attachment you have to this very nice person who's playing in her first slam semifinal, and, you know, you feel playing playing well, well and and you feel bad for her, and so in that case, it kind of colors the situation to make it a little bit more emotional than it really should be. I mean, the decision should be clinical. You should be seeing this person going through you know, okay, duress, and it's like, okay, sorry, I, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but you have to retire, get from your, you have to forfeit this game to get treatment, and then go and get treatment, and then if the doctor says you can't keep playing, then I'm sorry, you can't keep playing. Right. Like the emotional aspect of it, kind of colors it in a way, and it shouldn't, yeah. because we feel bad, right? Like we feel bad that this woman who's like standing there collapsing on the ground has to forfeit a game to get a doctor to treat her, but. That's what has to happen. <laughs> yeah. On the general issue of cramps, do you, do you like the current rule that cramps can't be treated like an injury? Yeah. Or do you I, think, I, or do you think for some sort of humanitarian pain relief reasons? And this got brought up more in the Steve Johnson match because that right. was uh, actually did end the match pretty directly. And that was pure cramping. I don't think anybody said that was heat illness, even though obviously conditions were unpleasant. And a lot of, a lot of guys especially seem to be having pro- uncharacteristic problems early in the tournament. Even like Andy Murray, I'm not sure anyone ever figured out. Maybe he, I don't know if he figured it out ever yet, what was going on with him. It was a weird sort of start to the tournament. I guess it had been a pretty mild summer before New York, and people weren't used to it. And suddenly it got to be a normal to unpleasant summer in New York pretty quickly. Because, uh, I mean, there wasn't major heat in Canada or Cincinnati or even Washington or Atlanta this year. What do you think? Do you think that's the good rule, or do you think that they should make it a little nicer for people? and let the sick be healed if it does affect competitive balance or not reward training or whatever you want to call it. I think it's a good rule. And and I think that it should be even a stricter one than that. I mean, I I think that across the board, I just kind of feel like tennis needs far more strictly applied rules. Okay? Like, like you know, time violation, hindrance rules, like whatever it is that that are like if – your match starts at seven o'clock and you don't show up until seven oh five for your match to be called. Like you should be DQ'd. Sorry. Yeah. You have to you have to be there at seven o'clock and we're gonna walk out on court. Um, all of these little things that tennis seems to just kind of take for granted that they get to change on the fly, like I think are ridiculous. And 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 with respect to cramping, if you are not capable to if your body starts seizing up, and I'm not saying that like I don't personally think that cramping is always a reflection of physical um inadequacy. Yeah. I think that sometimes your body just goes through what your body is. And sometimes I know for Steve Johnson, for example, he's prone to cramping. And Jamie, um, Jamie Hampton has it too. Jamie Hampton as well. Uh, Peng Shui has had heat related illnesses in the past and that sucks for them. Trust, you know, I, I, that, that sucks. But yeah. at the same time, you're not entitled to like get all of this like weird, like kind of like sports welfare to like, finish a match like you're not entitled to it if you are not able to compete and and then you lose the match and and you dq or you 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 retire that's just kind of the brutal reality of sport and but with tennis i think because there is this mentality of well you know there's not a lot of money in it these players aren't salaried they you know eat what they kill they have to win matches you have to give them the opportunity to compete all these sorts of things like these rules kind of get muddy and um 
but it shouldn't be because if you want this sport to be taken seriously, it has to take itself seriously as a competitive endeavor, which means that if somebody has a competitive advantage, they have a competitive advantage at any given moment. So and that's is, it. That's one thing we're saying they're getting right so far. So we're not always blasting tennis. So this rule seems on that aspect of it anyway, pretty solid. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, I'm perfectly fine with like no cramping being treated at all. Like, in other words, you can't get massages either, but whatever. Okay. Courtney's, Courtney's hot. Is a, is, a, is a cruel mistress of the sport. I am. I am. And that's why we like her so much and fear her. <laughs> <laughs> In equal parts. Courtney, speaking of you being cruel, I mean, that's not the right segue, but I know there are times in the past where you had been more negative, I guess, about the U.S. Open experience. And you said a, a few times, several times this tournament, actually, we're discussing it offline that it felt like a different tournament or different grounds to you this year. What what did what did you mean by that? And what were some of the things that I guess impressed you about the, the way the U.S. Open is evolving? Yeah, I mean, let me just say that at this U.S. Open, I got struck down by a fever. Mm-hmm. I had an explosive bloody nose, and I was constantly hacking like a dry cough for about seven days. Yeah, it was not pleasant from that perspective. And yet, I walked away from the U.S. Open actually feeling like this was, like, the most fun I had had at the U.S. Open. Um, And this is a tournament that didn't have, like, great matches, really. Like, not a ton of, like, great matches. Ended with Chilich as a champion, which, great for Marin Chilich. I'm just saying it wasn't, like, an electric final, which is what we're used to with the guys. But I really did leave thinking in my head just kind of, like, a non-scientific feeling that, like, this was the best one. Because... Yeah, like from a fan perspective, the tournament felt better. I mean, it almost felt like in in a single year it had modernized and like entered the 21st century. Um, The new viewing platforms over the practice courts as well as courts four, five, and six are fantastic. Um, I never thought the grounds were too crowded. I mean, there were definitely moments, but um, the the flow of fans was okay. Yep. Food wasn't, like, ridiculously overpriced. Drinks, still tremendously overpriced, but that's probably for the best. Let's not get drunk at the U.S. Open, right. guys. That's It's it's dangerous. Don't do it. Because those are some steep stairs. Those are some steep stairs. That's a lot of thin air at the top of Ash. Things are going to happen. Yeah, I went to the top of Ash this year, sidebar. I, like, I the media section was full. And just to sort of punish myself for being late to find a seat, I decided to go to the very last row of Ash because there were some open seats there. And I, I had sat there before as a fan, like in the last few rows of Ash. Holy crap. Like going back there, especially having being fairly spoiled, being a media person, getting decent views of courts around the world for free. Like those seats, you feel like you're in an airplane. It's gross. You really do. Like you feel like you're in some sort of alternate troposphere of the sky. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's very surreal. You feel disconnected from anything else going on and, you can see, I could still see the, I pretty good eyes. I could still see the ball. It's hard to see the scoreboard, actually, because they don't have the, they just have the scoreboards on the sides of the stadium mm-hmm. now on the inside. So it's hard to see the, like, the game score. But yeah, that was, that was, it's not a well-built stadium at all. Yeah, I mean, when I was up there a few years ago, I just, the, the biggest takeaway I had was that I could see the ball being hit before I heard it. Yep. By like a, a very significant margin. <laughs> yeah. So it was like a toy. It just really felt like you were in the Twilight Zone watching tennis. It just didn't make sense. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, I, I thought the improvements are really great. The improvements will continue. Unfortunately, obviously, that means changes to Grandstand and Armstrong, which are unfortunate because we love those courts. But 
you know, even just the simple thing they update, they like changed the font that they use for the scoreboards and it just felt modern all of a sudden. It didn't feel like it was from the 70s. I don't know. I just thought that like the, the they did a really good job this year. I didn't feel like it was crappy. Maybe it's because it wasn't super hot. I don't know. But it, the whole experience was much more positive this year than it has been any year in the past. I feel like the US Open gets crapped on a lot for various different things. and By us. By <laughs> us and by people in general. And I think that some of that's people fair. People hate it. Like people, press? people, people love to hate on the USF more than any other yeah. of the four slams. And a lot of that, people being jealous of America, and we get it. But another part, I mean, obviously the distance from Manhattan where people stay is a lot. It's, the commute's the commute, brutal. The commute's brutal. Well, that's not the tournament's fault per se. I mean, it can't suddenly up and be like, oh, I'm sorry, we'll put ourselves in Midtown next year. They do the best they can. They do the best they can on that part. But yeah, in general, I think the U.S. Open's doing a lot of things well. I mean, they're going to be the first slam to have every single court televised. That's kicking in, I think, next year? It's awesome. Or 2016. 2015 or 2016, they're going to have every single court televisable and streaming, uh, which will not necessitate the handicam that was used for CC Bellas. We should mention CC Bellas. We haven't mentioned her yet. Uh, CC Bellas, 15-year-old, won a match. There was Bellas Mania for like three days. Any thoughts on that briefly as I stumbled across that story? It was fun, but I think that I think that what was almost heartening, the most heartening thing about the whole CC Bellis mania was that everybody, like everybody, was like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" Right. Like, let's not udan this. Right. And like, I think that America has learned its lesson, and I think that it, actually the way that it was handled was pretty good in terms of giving the kid props because what she did was really incredible. I mean, I think that over Silvacova is a huge win. Such a, and just the way that she did it and really embracing the moment. There was just so much to like about what she did. But at the same time, for everybody to, to not blow it out of complete proportion and put her on magazine covers or like whatever, I thought was a good balance. So I was somewhat heartened by that. And I think the way she exited was also perfect in a lot of ways. Not so much the junior part where she lost the second round. I mean, that was fine. And that sort of chilled the hype machine more, which I think is, can't be a bad thing at this stage in her career. Diaz, Zarina Diaz match in the second round, I thought was just a nice balance of looking like she belonged, but still being a couple steps behind. Exactly. And that's, and that's exactly what you want to see. Right. Yeah. That's what you want to see. Yeah. So there you go. That was, that was the first week story that we should mention. Cause that was a big, big story. All these foreign media were asking about Bellas and what yeah. we do about her. And it really hijacked the first, My, she didn't play her I second love... round for a while. So it took exactly. a long time. Exactly. But I loved the Italian obsession with CC. They wanted that her. amused. They wanted to adopt her. Yeah. Because and I kept asking, I was like, "Why are you obsessed?" Because I don't think that she's actually Italian. They thought Bellis was an Italian name, and I was like, "Really?" They're like, "Yeah." Like, it never even occurred. I was like, "Her name is Catherine." Like she has like the waspiest name. It's like Catherine. It's very yeah. Carth, not Carthage. Um. I don't know, some sort of like, it almost sounds like her mother's maiden name or something. Yeah. Uh, and then her last name. But yeah, the Italians loved her and they always defended it by, oh, well, she won this ITF in Milan or something. I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's one I, of those things, like, certain, we, and this is a difference between the way that like, American press cover the tournaments and a lot of the international press that we can perceive do. A lot of them really try to find any sort of hook to the home country they can possibly find. Like, the British press, I think it was at the French Open. No. Where do they have a bad slam this year? I think it was... Um, I think it was the French. It wasn't even that bad a slam, because Murray did pretty well. Australia? I'm not sure, but whatever it was, it was something like they they switched their coverage of like at least one person. They're like, what can we cover now? Well, 
Edouard Roger Vasselin spent a few years in London growing up. Let's write about him, yeah. I guess. And I was like, do you really need to grasp for that straw? Does anybody care? It, there's a lot of that. It, it, it's just it, not which, a mode we go into. And it's a weird yeah, we don't go like, oh, you know, this player from Slovakia and we won this ITF in Florida this spring. And so, you know, like that's just... It never, would never. Yeah, it we could do that with Sharapova. Even with Sharapova, it's a legitimate, I think, in terms of how these things go. Right. It's a legitimate U.S. claim because she's been here since she was seven. Um, but we don't, at the French Open, no one's like, well, at least we got an American champion this year. Right. No, I mean, you only you only kind of connect to it simply because you're like, well, she speaks English. So you can, like, get a good quote. And, you know what I mean? Like, like certain players who are particularly, you know, good in English, like, they probably get more coverage in English-speaking press than obviously non, but it's not about the connection to the States. That's probably fair. Speaking of American tennis, it was revealed during the U.S. Open that Patrick McEnroe had been ousted, in the words of uh, the New York Times reporter Mary Palin, who broke the story, from his job as director of player development. Patrick McEnroe was <laughs> awkwardly on air calling the Nishikori Ravrinka match. While this was going on, and the match went five sets, and so he kept being stuck on air and didn't have time, but there was a press conference called, and before that, Patrick McElroy went on to a studio show on the ESPN studio and sort of told his side of the story first, where he said it was more mutual and about not wanting to move down to the new massive gargantuan USDA training center in Lake Nona, Florida, near Orlando, and yeah, so Patrick McElroy is out as head of player development. Uh, effective pretty soon. I don't know if it's already immediately, but soon. Uh, no clear replacement yet. This was a very, I think, a pretty inside baseball, inside tennis story, largely. But I think the general effect of American tennis being seen as unsatisfactory made this pretty easy to resonate out or at least to spin that as these being related events, even if Patrick made the made the reasons seem and his USCA people who were with him on the podium during his press conference all made it seem more like geographic and just the right, you know, this didn't work out in terms of logistics. Courtney, what do you make of Patrick's exit legacy? Anything? Huh. Um, it was, a, it was a weird, because of that inconsistency, it was a weird sort of story to, to, to properly hot take. <laughs> Yeah, no, because the bottom line is that there's no way to deny the fact that American tennis, both on the men's and women's side, does not occupy the same stature within global tennis as it once did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50. Any interval you um, want, yeah. Any interval you want. It's 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 at a downturn, which is why it was so shocking to hear like a Chris Everett, you know, trying in her attempts to what became on ESPN this weird McEnroe pep rally yeah. um, to say, oh, well, w- the American women's tennis is as strong as it's ever been. Really? <laughs> really? I, we I, used to have like six I've, people in the top 10. What I are you talking have, about? I may have burst out laughing when she said that. That I was crazy. Have. I'm really, that she's just insane. trying to cheer up Patrick and be supportive. And I also know that her academy has gotten a lot of support from the USDA and she's no reason to be mad at Patrick or be unsatisfied. I don't think from her end. It's probably been a great coworker to her at ESPN. But yeah, no, the numbers do not back up. We have no. one woman in the top 15 right now. Facts. We used to have like six or seven in the top 10 and win Facts. Grand Slams. Like it was Halloween night every night for us. And we only Facts. got treats. Facts. I mean, that you know, that's the case. And so, um, you know, it's hard to ignore the downturn. Now, how much of that can be tra- tra- traced back to 
Patrick McEnroe? What, did he need like a little bit more time to change things, to change the junior system, the, the talent and, and youth development system? I'm not sure where I fall on that, but at the, the bottom line is that from his, his installation to when he was either kicked out or stepped down, whichever story you believe, um, not a whole lot of progress was made. No. And, but the flip side of that is, and this is something that I truly believe, federations can't create champions. Yeah. And, and so this, it becomes this like very weird combination of um, kind of trends and theories where it's almost like there's a part of me that thinks there's nothing McEnroe could have done. This is just the state of tennis in America. Kids don't grow up thinking I want to go be a tennis player. So that obviously affects the, the base pool. And then from there, you know, you're not going to get much. That's not Patrick McEnroe's fault. But at the same time, if you're the head of player development and you're not developing players, then yeah, it's probably time to go at some point. It's kind of zooms out to this whole thing. I, I spent some time at the, at the open with um, Josh Levine, the editor at Slate. And I actually was talking to him about Washington about this too. And you were recently a guest on their hang up and listen podcast. So so fun. You you should guys should listen to that. They spliced in Azarenka singing into her segment, <laughs> which I might just do right now too, just to torture you guys because it's really bad. We didn't mention it, but that was horrendous. <laughs> okay, sing with me. Sing with me. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear guys. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. But, you know, fearless, so I give her that. Yeah, but this whole notion that, like, tennis is is, is weirder, more attachment to patriotism or nationalism than a lot of other individual sports. Like, you always see, like, on the scoreboard, on the draw, like... You know, John Isner, USA, versus Philip Kohlschreiber, G-E-R. And it's like this, like, national World War II rematch every time they step on court with each other. Whereas, like, in golf, for example, they don't usually, they don't often put the nationalities right on the scoreboard all the time. Yeah, it's secondary. It's secondary. They do sometimes. Certain graphics have the flags, and most of the time they don't. And it's just a different thing. Like, why is individual tennis player is something that becomes the responsibility of a nation or even the pride of a nation. Like, okay, the, or in terms of federation, especially like, okay, the USA won three gold medals out of five at the London Olympics. That's pretty good. Uh, the Bryans won, the Williams sisters won and Serena won. But I don't think the USDA had anything to do with any of that. <laughs> exactly. And yet they can't say they were anything short of, of a massively successful federation at the same time based on elite results because they won the majority of the gold medals at the London Olympics, which are like federation wise, the biggest event they have, I think Olympics. So like where, what what does this all mean? I don't, I I just think it's very strange. And it's a lot of very unclearness where the buck stops and what success can be traced to who and what can't be and what failures or whose responsibility. It's just a, it, reflects well i think the whole sort of who knows about what makes a champion and how to build a champion and who deserves success blame and all that stuff i think is it's pretty messy like is it is it the usca's fault that sloan lost in the second round of the u.s open 
Probably. Uh, probably, I guess. <laughs> I'm just I, I, I don't know. But they also, it's also their fault that Madison lost. Well, Madison right. actually has a USTA coach. That's different. I mean, they have more hands-on. It's it's a mess. And it's just it's a mess. all sort and... of goes together as to what, why we care. I understand for box office completely and for ratings and money why it's important that there is a relevant, relevant, American players on the men's and women's side for both of them. Men especially, obviously, there's a much bigger uh, lack at the moment. But yeah, that part I get, but why it's the, you know, why there should be someone charged with fixing it, I don't know. The whole thing is kind of strange to me. It's it's a tough thing because I think that in the big, theoretically, what a federation is there for and should be there for is to support a player and let them do whatever they want to do. You just basically help them foot the bill. Um, but obviously a federation's ego gets its in, gets in its way because the federation wants to not just be the person writing checks, but to be able to take credit for some of the success. And I think that a model that seems to have worked is Tennis Canada. Okay. Explain which that. is basically they had money and and with Raunich and with Bouchard. Impossible. They and Pospisil, they let them hire whoever. And then when they needed training facilities, they provided them back home and gave them any sort of support. But financially, they eased the burden of being a professional tennis player. They didn't put, they didn't say you have to be coached by a Tennis Canada coach. Yeah. You know, like that's the only way we're going to give you free coaching is if you go with a Tennis Canada coach, which is what, you know, Tennis Australia does. That's what uh, the French Federation does. That's what the LTA does. That's what the USTA does. Is like if you use one of our coaches, then obviously it's subsidized. But if you go outside of that, for the most part, barring a few exceptions, that's on you. Yeah. Like you got to pay for it. So with Tennis Canada, they were like, yeah, if Jeannie wants to hire Saviano, she goes Saviano. If they want Toziat, she goes Toziat. Um, if Ronich wants to go Lubacic as opposed to, I can't remember his previous coach's name at the moment, Gallo, Blanco, yeah. then fine. You know, But they helped foot the bill, whether it was directly to the coaching or even if it's, if it's just we'll help pay for your flights and hotels and accommodations around the world. So uh, there's a lot to be said about kind of that um, that model. Yeah, and Tennis and Canada. obviously the results. Tennis Canada also has a much more targeted, from what I can tell, and I don't, obviously don't know a lot about their workings in particular, but from what I can tell from talking to a few of the players who aren't that, aren't those three, they really focused their funding and focused their energies on the ones who they really thought could make it. And then ones like... Gabriela Dabrowski and like Peter Polanski got a little bit left by the wayside more. Whereas I think the USTA has provided a lot of support to a lot of players who just won't yeah, be Grand Slam point. champions. I mean, you can, or even, you know, top 20 players, like no disrespect to her, but the first one that comes to mind is like Grace Min. Like right. Grace Min has gotten a lot of USTA support and obviously won a junior Grand Slam, but I don't think anybody thinks she hasn't proven that she's going to be any sort of high-level, high-guaranteed-impact player, or even close yeah. to that. She's undersized. I mean, that, that's a big thing, just as, you know, and all these sorts of things. But yeah, you're right. So, that's one way to do it. But yeah, it just all goes to the thing, like, what are your priorities? They have so much money, is the thing. It's the blessing of the USTA. These are good problems to have on some level. We have so much money, how do we spend it all on <laughs> the really big-picture, unimportant goal of making an American <laughs> tennis player? I mean, there's a lot of world problems that are much higher priority um, than having a a tennis player born within our shores representing the great US of A. Right. But we still want it to, to be done well and people people do care. 
people do want Americans to do well. That's not a as much as people say. Yeah, everybody loves Federer. It still it still matters to a lot of fans and a lot of places to make Americans. Uh, well, it, it's not to me. Thing. It's not about fans, and and this is something that that I blanch at a little bit because obviously you know people will say, and I, I hear it a lot. Like, who gives a crap? If, if Americans are good or not, like tennis is global, et cetera, et cetera. To those people, I simply say, recognize that America is a global economic power. And that means that there's a shit ton of money in, in, in America. And that to the extent that there is a reason for American companies um, and sponsors to invest in tennis is simply good for the sport. And if you can't provide an American champion, particularly a male champion, simply because that's where things are right now, you know, you're basically missing out on a ton of money and a ton yeah. of investment. And that is not good for the sport as a whole. Like, you know, I mean, say what you want, but the players like right now with the big four guys, they subsidize the Chiliches of the world. Oh, yeah. Sergei Stakovsky gets to pop off and have a perfectly nice life because there are these big four guys who have demanded increases in prize money that affect the lower levels of guys who lose in the first and second rounds and have zero impact on the tour on a massive level like they make a pretty okay living or at least are allowed to attempt to make a living because of four people right in the same way within tennis you can say the same thing about australia france britain and the states they are the four slam countries and to the extent that money and and tournaments are there in those countries, to the extent that, that tennis becomes popular in those nations, it is better for the sport as a whole. And if this sport becomes completely fragmented to where you have in the top 10, let's just say, theoretically, Serbia, uh, Croatia, the Czech Republic, I'll throw them a bone, Japan. Bulgaria is in there right now. Bulgaria, um, Canada. Yeah. Switzerland. Sp- Spain, in economic crisis. Uh, Switzerland, sure. Even like a well, yeah. Well, if Germany had a legit slam champion prospect, that'd be a big then deal. that'd be different. Austria, let's throw Austria in there. Uh, th- that's not good for tennis. No, and here's the it's thing: it's just financially not viable. Speaking of Chilich, this is Marin Chilich's big week. I mean, I think it's fair to say, and I know this is totally just American bias. I think it's very fair to say they've had very comparable results over the past five years, um, Chilich and Isner. Really, they've occupied sort of the same stratus of the rankings and tournaments and all that stuff. Um, Isner's done a little bit better, I think, than Chilich, probably on paper, before obviously the U.S. Open came around. Right. Um, I think Isner has been an infinitely more relevant player to tennis because of what he means to the American market than Chilich ever was yeah. on, on a global scale. And Isner carrying the flag and all that stuff, it just matters. It m- made him a more important commodity for the sport. Than, but even than, out, than Imagine yeah, if, totally, if Chilich had been in America, this would have been a totally different thing. Uh, totally can you, ima- can you imagine if this guy came out of nowhere in the teens and won a slam was an American? Jesus. Yeah. But I mean, I, even outside of that, like, you know, again, this is where the business side of the sport kind of comes in and maybe trumps the fan side of the sport. But if you don't have like a Andy Murray, for example, if Britain doesn't have a top 50 player, then all of like... Are there British writers traveling to every single tournament to cover tennis? And if there are not, then that is a huge... Because Australia... I mean, Australia doesn't send people everywhere to cover tennis. Mm. They don't have a top 50 guy. But if, if, if you lose Britain, then that's a whole... 
like four, five, six newspapers yeah. that aren't that are English speaking newspapers that aren't printing English speaking news about tennis constantly, and they do a and really good job of being like they do a they conference. do a great job of it, and that's that. There's that within America. I mean, there are exceptions. Obviously, you and I travel a lot. That is not necessarily we are not the norm. We are not the norm simply because for different reasons, but for the most part, American tennis is not tracked throughout the, the throughout the year which means again that in, uh, you know english speaking media are not there which means english like articles english profiles are not being written i mean i don't want it to sound like this is like weird jingoism it's not but like it's it does have an impact it does on it, the sport and i mean american if you fail tennis, to recognize that that's that's it's it's dangerous even the at sport. the us open i mean we have a different sort of approach to it like like we're talking about before with roger vasselin getting grass fish shots by British people like Nicole Gibbs made the third round and I don't know if anybody wrote about it yeah I mean, which is a shame which that is shouldn't a shame. be the case that shouldn't, that be, the shouldn't case. be the that's case that's not the kind of thing that that's obviously not a good thing but it just sort of shows how our perspective on the sport is not as much as the other sports I will say also on the flip side Nisha Corey doing well is massive for the sport financially huge that is a huge huge market that really likes sports it really, it's a very patriotic market too in Japan. That is stable economically. It's stable economically, it turns out well. It has a pretty good tennis tradition, actually. Unlike yep. China, which really didn't. I mean, I wrote about the guys, and you know, in the past, were doing well at Wimbledon in the '30s. I mean, this is, and they've hosted big tournaments, relevant tournaments in Japan for decades and decades. It was one of the founding stops when the ATP Tour and the Pro Circuits first got started. Japan was pretty early on the calendar. Uh, yeah, this is a big market, and that's a huge, huge thing, and that's a dream market for either tour. <laughs> We've t- joked before about the amount of money that Adidas had poured into Ayumi Morita. I right. mean, making Japan happen was a huge goal for tennis, and that's a big, huge. big win for men's tennis to have Nishikori uh, representing well, that that yeah. place. And I think that's why probably internally everybody was really rooting for Kay to win in the final, simply because it meant that there would be theoretically some sort of meaningful impact in the tennis part tennis market that's why people are sweating a few bullets with respect to lena yeah and what the future of her career means um and what that means for this ridiculous push by stacy allister and the wta into china and what if lena pulls the plug we don't know i mean i'm not i'm, I'm not speculating i'm just saying we re- literally do not know what her career is going to look like and she is the one that's delivering you know, all of that, that money and that opportunity. And once you take that away, like, are people going to get excited about a Peng Shui who's already 28? She's not young. A Zhang Shui, you know, that's, I don't know. So these are, I don't know. That's sometimes I do look at things that way, which sucks. But as one who is reliant on the sport to give me money, (laughs) I have to make sure that the sport will continue to make money. (laughs) That's, that's, that's the cold, honest truth right there. Yeah. And that's that's what it is. I mean, and the fact is we are inside the sport, so we see a little bit more of the mechanisms and care more about how the gears turn and how the, the tank gets filled in this engine and all that sort of stuff, probably more than outsiders do. But hopefully that's something that you guys like about listening to this show thing we do. Or you might just tweet us like I've been tweeted before, which was like, shut the fuck up, stop complaining, you have dream jobs. To which I say... Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, I get to watch tennis all day, but it's 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 there are other sides of it that aren't great. And but whatever. Anyways, we, I'm I just saying. Overall, we do pretty. I'm, I've, yeah, no. I if I didn't like it, I wouldn't be in it. Trust me. Yeah. So there we go. 
sort of put a cap on all of this, I think. Tony TJC05 asks us, sum up the 2014 slam season in one word. You go first. Oh, God. Because uh, I always go first. If that was hyphenated, that would be a pretty good answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about... Um, okay, my basic word is not a very exciting word, but I will just say unsettled. Like, this hmm. was a tour that which just didn't feel like the pieces of the puzzle were together. This was things, people sort of scrambling and some musical chairs that happened and nothing was fixed and things were not, things were not stable. It was an unsettled tour at the slams and you never knew what you were going to get. And you got some weird things. And then you also kind of got, but it wasn't all weird because you still had at the end of the year, Djokovic, Serena, Sharapova, Nadal all winning slams. That's not weird. So I'll say unsettled. My word, and I think this is like you being glass half, you know, half empty and me being it glass full. To me, uh, the word to sum up the slam season of 2014 is smorgasbord. Oh, okay. There was just a little bit for everyone. And, and I really do think that. I mean, you obviously started the season with like Lee Na, um, who, again, like we said before, all of the slam winners for the WTA side this year were repeat winners. This was not a random year. And it was people winning the majors that they're kind of supposed to win. Yeah. Um, so, it's again, it's if anybody tries to tell you that this was some random WTA year, call bullshit on it because it's not true. Uh, Lee Na has been knocking on the door at the at the Australian Open for years. Finally broke through, obviously. Um, and then you had Stan Wawrinka, so you got a new name. Beat, became the first guy to beat both Novak and Rafael Nadal to win a major. New, but that not out pretty- of nowhere. Yeah, not not out of nowhere. We we kind of already had our eye on him going into the open. Um, and same with Lee Na. She had come in and she was number two. And people were, you know, some people picked her to win it. Some people at least made her picture to make the final. Right. So there was that. Then everything turns to the French Open. Rafael Nadal does what he does. So there's your stability, homies. What was it? Uh, nine, yep, nine straight? Yeah, nine straight. straight. Not straight. Oh, so, not straight. Sorry. But his ninth uh, French Open title. So there's your stability there. Maria Sharapova wins the French Open once again. Claypova emerges um, in a very dramatic tournament for her. So, you know, second uh, French Open title in three years. Pretty, pretty good. Uh, Wimbledon, you know, obviously we get Federer into a final. So we actually got that. And uh, another great five-setter that unfortunately he came out on the losing end of. But, uh, and Djokovic, obviously, redemption story there. Kvitova showing her the reason why we always talk about her, despite the fact that she loses to a Luxica Kum Kum at the Australian <laughs> Open. I mean, like, no matter what Petra does on the low end, what she can do on the high end is, is ridiculous and amazing. And then across, and then across the board, you get Bouchard, you get Halep, um, you know, promising names that are going to break through eventually. And then you turn to New York and, uh, Serena is the epitome of stability, and she gets that done. Caroline Wozniacki, obviously, with a good story into the final. And then the, it, for those who just wanted something completely different and outside of the box, you got Marin Cilic. So, and then on top of that, Kaney Shikori, you know, making good on his talent and his reputation. So, yeah, but also out of nowhere. I mean, neither of those guys came in with any sort of exactly pre-tournament hype. And there's your diversity. Yeah, no, completely. That's, yeah, that was so, very smorgasbord. Is, it's a very good pick. I like that. And you didn't completely limit yourself to adjectives, which was smart. So well done. I do what I can. You do what you can. You're a writer. <laughs> yeah, so that, that works out well. It was a pretty nutty year in the slams. You mentioned Kum Kum. 
let's note that women who lost, who have played in Grand Slam finals this year, okay, uh-huh. the spread of them, include, had losses at slams to the following people. Luxika Kumkum, Lucic Baroni at the U.S. Open, out of nowhere, and CeCe Bellis. These are true. All these people beat slam finals. Maybe there's more than I didn't think. Modenovic, Zolovova, yeah. Zolovova, Stritzova, that's just Lina. Sorry, Lina. Yeah. Uh, Muguruza and Cornet for Serena. Yep. Who did Wozniacki lose to? Gosh. Wickmeyer at this French. Wickmeyer? Zolovova, Stritzova beat two of them. She beat Wozniacki at the Wimbledon, too. She is the slam stopper. Who knew? And Muguruza beat Wimble- uh, Wozniacki and uh, the French also. So Muguruza and, and, and Bezos both getting on the board twice. There. Bezos. Who, by the way, has turned herself into a steady little player. I'm so excited <laughs> to have her around. I don't mind it. She's I don't a, she's mind it. She's a value it. add. Yeah. That will do it for us. We should probably pull the plug on this rather long episode. And you guys are more than a value add for us. So we thank you so much for adding to our lives in so many different ways. If you want to add more of us to your lives, you can follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can like us on Facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast you can also subscribe to us on any sort of podcast app you want and also the itunes family of programs you can also leave us reviews on itunes store as well we like that and you can send us emails for any questions you might have for future episodes we'll do more questions as it gets into the asian part of the calendar and the matches get to be a little bit less monumental uh, our email address is no challenges remaining at gmail.com. So that will do it for this episode. We'll see you guys next time. No more slams for 2014, but plenty of tennis for better or worse. Bye guys. Late. Versus Christoph Milnjokovic in the Barnett Cup semifinal. In the what? Got my lawn chair in my trunk, not an ocean inside. So kiss my ass, New York, cause it's tennis night. Hey ho!